if you don't live in an ADU friendly area, which is by the way, like 90% of the United States, don't build an ADU, build everything other than an ADU. Don't put it in the kitchen sink. Don't put it in the stove and tell your planning department to go, you know, suck it. Like, Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 180 with Cole Peterson. Cole Peterson has been on the forefront of ADU development and advocacy for at least the last 10 years in Portland, Oregon. But don't worry, this conversation applies to ADUs at least everywhere in the United States, if not beyond that. Cole is a really great thinker and is just whip smart and really quite funny and and just passionate about ADUs. And in this conversation, we will really dive into why Cole sees ADUs as such an incredible opportunity for solving the affordable housing crisis. And then we also talk about what is happening in Portland as it relates to tiny houses and probably making Portland the most tiny house friendly city in the country, I would think. Um, So it's really exciting to hear what's happening. And I just really enjoyed this conversation with Cole Peterson. And I know you will too. One more thing. When you listen to my conversation with Cole, you'll notice that I actually asked Cole a question that came in from Tiny House Engage. That's because Tiny House Engage members get to listen live while I record these podcast episodes and ask questions of our guests. It's a really great way to get an inside look at the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast and also just get to benefit from the amazing array of talented guests that we have on the podcast. Registration is open until Tuesday, so just another couple of days, and you can learn everything you need to know about Tiny House Engage at thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash engage. I am here with Cole Peterson. Cole is an ADU expert based in Portland, Oregon, who has helped catalyze the exponential growth of ADUs in Portland over the last decade through ADU advocacy, education, consulting, policy work, and entrepreneurship through his company, Accessory Dwelling Strategies, LLC. He is the author of Backdoor Revolution, the definitive guide to ADU development. He is the owner of Caravan, the tiny house hotel, the first tiny house hotel in the world and organizer of Portland's popular ADU tour. He consults with homeowners about ADUs on their property and teaches ADU classes for homeowners and for real estate agents in Oregon, Washington, and California. He also co-runs ADU Academy and the ADU specialist designation for professionals with earth advantage. He edits and manages accessorydwellings.org and buildingandadu.com. Cole Peterson, welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. It's a very impressive bio. I, as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, this this person is busy. Yeah, I'm busy and I'm starting up another company right now, so <laughs> it makes my life busier. Yeah. Well, I, I was hoping that I have so many different questions for you and I'm, I'm trying to kind of figure out where to start. I guess um, my first question is, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it it sounds like you kind of were into ADUs before you were into tiny houses. Would that be correct or or am I mis saying it? Actually, that's a really good question. And 
No, I'd say I was actually into tiny houses first. I went to a workshop by Jay Schaefer in Portland in like, oh God, it was a long time ago. Probably like 2010, I'm guessing. Uh-huh. And, and basically, you know, learned about tiny houses. because I was thinking about living in a bus or a tiny house or some kind of cooperative. And then I learned about ADUs and I was like, hmm, that's where it's at. So I got into ADUs in 2000, like later in 2010. Got it. So why did you, what made you say, okay, ADUs, that's where it's at? Well, because tiny houses weren't legal, you know? Yeah. They weren't legal anywhere. And so ADUs were basically like another way to do house hacking in a meaningful way. And the same, like ADUs and tiny houses have a lot in common, a lot not in common. But fundamentally, they're both, from my vantage, solving these major systemic, social, political, environmental issues. And so I'm a fan of both of them. But ADUs, unlike tiny houses, fit really, you know, relatively well within the conventional housing regime that is insurance, financing, appraisals, you know, construction methods, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas tiny house on wheels were this like fringe thing. So there couldn't be broad cultural or institutional adoption at that point in time. Now that's changing as we speak and I'm involved with that, but, but ADUs were more of a conventional concept that could take hold in a lot more of the country because they followed all the nomenclature and standards and rules of normal construction. Got it. Got it. Yeah. In a way, it seems that tiny houses are, are being folded in under the ADU umbrella. They are now in, you know, five jurisdictions in California. But, you know, what, what we're doing in Portland that I'm really proud of is not making them fall within the conventional IRC, you know, nomenclature of planning and zoning terminology. Rather, we're carving out a kind of a new category for nice. tiny house on wheels and RVs. And, and so I think there's the opportunity for them to fall under the ADU umbrella, perhaps. But I think they're at kind of their own animal enough that I don't think they should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I want to back up a little bit from there, um, you know. I'm I'm always amazed. I, I hope that my listeners now know what ADU stands for, accessory dwelling unit. But um, in case this is the first time someone's hearing of of an ADU, can you just like expand? What's your definition of an ADU? Yeah, I mean it's like a two sentence definition: a secondary housing unit on a single family lot. That's not all entirely true. It's not like a you know there's different all these definitions break down. But just to keep it simple secondary housing unit on a single family lot and, and commonly referred to as backyard cottages, in-law suites, mother-in-law units, you know, and a hundred other synonyms. Okay. Yeah. So they can, it, it's a definition that encompasses all the different permutations of, you know, converting a room over the garage, building a cottage in the backyard, building, you know, portioning off your house into, and turning it into a second unit, all those fall under ADU. Yeah. And we should just clarify, Ethan, that like, because that definition is two sentences, the deep answer gets really complicated, but, but, um, you know, fundamentally, if it has a kitchen in it, it mm-hmm. typically is defined as a housing unit. And so therefore you can add everything to your property, such as like a detached accessory structure that has an office in it. That's not an ADU, but if you add a kitchen into it, then it's going to trigger the ADU standard. So basically that's what we're talking about is like a secondary living space. That means it has its own kitchen. Interesting. And is that just a, a Portland thing or is that pretty, pretty national? That's uniform, uniform. Okay. But the interpretation of how you define what is a, what is and what is not a kitchen might vary by uh, the local jurisdiction level. 
Typically, it's the stove. It's, it's specifically it's the two twenty outlet for a stove or the gas connection that defines a stove. And rather than the stove itself, it's the connection to the stove, and then it's the a, a certain size of a sink, basically. Wow. So you could potentially build something that doesn't have that in it, and it wouldn't be an ADU. Exactly. In fact, I encourage people to do that. If you don't live in an ADU friendly area, which is, by the way, like ninety percent of the United States, don't build an ADU, build everything other than an ADU. Don't put it in the kitchen sink. Don't put it in the stove and tell your planning department to go, you know, suck it. Like you're building, <laughs> you're building an ADU, you call it something else and you're solving all the same problems that ADU solve. And when the planning building department comes around, you can add a kitchen and stove, but meanwhile you have like functionally an ADU and people, you can figure out a way to wash your dishes in the bathroom sink if needed. And you can figure out how to cook your food in a microwave hot plate or convection oven if needed. And um, eventually the, your, you know, city will catch up and have decent AD regulations, but until then build, you know, build what you want to build that accomplishes what you need it to accomplish. And then add the kitchen sink and stove later if needed. Cool. What do you see as the, the primary thing that, that ADUs accomplish? Well, they accomplish a lot of different things, right? Yeah. They're like this like um, magical pill that solves all of these social, economic, environmental issues, which is why they're cool. They have this, such a broad coalition from affordable housing advocates to people who want more aging and face place, housing opportunities, people for who have disabled children, to um, people who want to generate wealth, to people who want to solve for climate change because they're creating urban infill to people who believe in green building because they understand that ADUs are inherently smaller, therefore they're more efficient. So there's this really great kind of coalition of people who have strong reasons to believe in ADUs. And so it's a matter of kind of aligning everybody's understanding of ADUs and the complexities and the barriers to ADU development and changing those institutional barriers to enable more people to be able to build them. And those institutional barriers really start with the regulatory legislative barriers that are, like I said, in, in place in 90% of the United States, including the entire East Coast. There isn't one city in the entire East Coast of the United States that has what I would call good AD regulations yet. Wow. Yeah, I, so I'm in Burlington, Vermont, and, and they're working on it. They, they, they allow ADUs, but functionally... You have to be rich to build one in your backyard just because of how many hoops you have to jump through to do it. Yeah. Yep. So what, what makes ADU regulations more friendly? Well, the, the big ones are off-street parking. Like if you require off-street parking, people won't be able to build a legal permit ADU. This is like prioritizing yeah. cars over people. It's yep. geometrically impossible to add one. That's kind of a well-known one. The second big one is owner-occupancy requirements which is if you build an AD, you must live on the property that is, you know, shackling your freedom to do what you want with your house to these stupid arbitrary regulations that don't apply to any other form of housing. Why are you applying it to ADUs? Number three, conditional land use reviews, which is where you have to go through a discretionary, non-predictable process. That's a really common one on the East Coast, like in all of Mass mm -hmm. or half of Massachusetts anyway. Yeah. And then we get into much more fine-toothed detailed barriers such as the size of the ADU or the setback requirements for ADUs, whether it's like, you know, if you have a 20 foot 
rear yard setback requirement because you're adopting the underlying zoning of a particular uh, parcel, that's going to be a barrier to AD development. If you're limiting the size of AD to 25% of the size of the primary house, which is a common regulation, that's going to limit the ADUs to only be like pencil for properties that have big houses on it, i.e. it's a regressive ordinance that benefits people who have wealth and not people who don't. And there's like, you know, probably five to seven other significant common barriers, such as height limitations and other things that cause, or, or like saying the ADU must be attached to the primary house that undermines like 60% of the ADU market. So there's a lot of like common, more less, less contentious, but just like significant barriers like that, that it would also put into like the poison pill category. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As you rattled those things off, I, I was just kind of thinking about stories that I've heard from, from various cities on the East coast of how hard it is to do these kinds of things. And, and I wonder, you know, I don't know if this is, well, I'm sure you think about this. You seem like a th- pretty thoughtful guy. Just the, the idea or the criticism that, okay, I am a like wealthy person who owns a house in my city. I'm going to put an ADU in my backyard. I could rent it to a tenant for $1,200 a month, or I could put it on Airbnb and make $3,000 a month. Is that a bad thing if, if I put my ADU on Airbnb, or am I still adding, uh, adding housing to my city? Well, th- this is like the one of the more controversial hot button issues within the ADU yeah. policy conversation. So there isn't like one right answer to this. It all is very like dependent on the city. There's really no right answer. Okay. So, yeah. So in Portland, what they've done is we, they've said we support ADUs, but if, and only if they're being used to provide housing, anything other than short-term rental is a good thing from our perspective, whether it's an office space or additional living space for an aging parent or a visiting family member, that's all good. But if you're going to use it as a short-term rental, you're going to have to pay the system development charges, which are the residential impact fees for doing new development. And that adds $25,000 of cost. So they're saying, yep, you can do it. Totally fine to use an ADU as a short-term rental. However, you're going to have to pay to do so because we don't want to subsidize you adding a hotel room. We don't care about hotel rooms. We care about housing because we're trying to solve the affordable housing crisis. So we want you to build an ADU, but not if it's a short-term rental. And or, or, or no, I shouldn't say, if it's a short-term rental, you can do it, but we're not going to help you do it financially. Got it. So, I mean, I think that's a reasonable approach for a city to take. I think that's a fair approach. I think it makes sense. It's in alignment with their policy values. But other jurisdictions, I can imagine, simply don't want short-term rentals at all. In which case, as long as they're treating ADUs with parity as they do to a single family house, I think it's fine to say no short-term rentals in our community or mm-hmm. every structure can be a short-term rental, but don't treat ADUs with special, uh, with poor treatment um, in some way that's going to especially penalize them. Got it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Kind of saying that people could do this with, single family homes. Like I could, I could invest and buy the house next door and put it on Airbnb and that, that shouldn't be treated any differently than me putting an ADU in my backyard. Yeah. So you've been advocating for ADUs for, for a long time, probably much longer than most people have heard about them. I feel like in the last couple of years, ADUs have become a really hot 
kind of almost a buzzword that you you hear, at least I hear a lot in the tiny house world. Um, can you talk about what the landscape was like when you started advocating for ADUs and, and what it's like now, at least in, in Portland where you are? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the broader, the point that you just made is the big one, which is ADUs have become almost like a, it's, it's almost seeped beyond just being a known thing amongst planning and zoning staff, but now it's kind of known amongst a number of different industries, like mm-hmm. builders, planners, designers, realtors, you know, um, municipal officials, affordable housing advocates, green builders, everybody kind of knows about ADUs now. And so there's a lot of more institutional support, not, not the least of which is AARP, which is the largest nonprofit or member organization in the country. Now they're really gung, they're really go hung, go whatever. They're really gung ho for ADUs, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Whereas when I started doing this work, there was nobody. There was no articles about ADUs. There was no, there's certainly no institutional backing for ADUs by anybody. So it was just like an ad hoc group of people who got together in Portland who started to like think about what we could do to promote this thing called ADUs that you've never heard of, but they're really cool and you should consider them. And so it was like building accessorydwellings.org and running the ADU tour and mm-hmm. teaching classes and stuff like that. That was like just like building the base, the 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 um the the ground game for like awareness mm-hmm. about this housing form. Why do you think that the AARP has gotten so gung ho on on ADUs? For all the reasons I just said, it's a win, 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 which you don't find very much in the world. No, no, you really don't. You really don't. It's pretty cool. And it also, I think what's cool about it is that it, by definition, is so grassroots because, you know, all these single family homes are owned by individual people and it's, it's kind of a grassroots response to the housing crisis that we have individual people building individual units in their backyards rather than a developer, you know, buying an old school or an old uh, industrial building and turning it into apartments. You've, you've basically just quoted the back cover of my book. Wow. I mean, that's, that, that's what I said too, you know, it's yeah. like, this is a grassroots housing revolution that can solve all these problems. Like mm-hmm. it's super cool. That's why I like it. It's like distributed. It's not a centralized solution. So everybody can take advantage of it as long as these institutional barriers are knocked down, which I, I think is awesome. Like there's very few yeah. things like that. It's like a very substantial, it's not a small thing. It's not like not to like throw changing light bulbs under the bus. That's a great thing. Do it. But like 80s are very substantial in terms of the carbon impact or reduction that they can offer. So it's, especially if you're doing like a conversion. Mm-hmm. And this is also true with tiny houses on wheels, by the way. It's not just ADUs, but um, anyway, it's a very substantial thing that somebody can do in their lifetime. Cool. So one thing that I, um, that I was thinking of while you were talking was, has the, it sounds like the legal or the, the, the regulatory structures have kind of warmed to ADUs and it's a lot easier. Are the financial and insurance and other kind of things that a homeowner would need to build one in place? Or is it kind of like, okay, if you want to do an ADU, you're going to have to have a hundred thousand dollars in cash because you're not going to get financing to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the truth with ADUs is like more or less you need to be well healed or act, uh-huh. be have access to family members who are because the financing is so difficult. And there's a lot of interest now from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to change underwriting policy, but there's still, even if they fixed what they could, there's still the appraisers who need to understand how to properly value ADUs, which is a problem. And then there's banks who need to be willing to be risky with construction loan policies to go above and beyond what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac might offer. Um, So there's just a lot of barriers that it's not, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. And so there's a lot of work, a lot of like smart people who are kind of thinking about AD financing all across the country now in their local jurisdiction. Like how how can we make AD financing easier? And eventually after a thousand flowers bloom, you know, some people will figure out good ways to do it. It just hasn't really occurred yet. Yeah. What do you envision for the the future state of ADUs? You know, like you've you've gone from it being really hard and not a lot of people know about it to it's it's easier. There are fr- ADU friendly cities, but you still have to, as you said, be well healed. You know, where do you hope this movement is in in ten in ten years more? Well, good tie in. I think I think it should go into the mobile ADU space. I think that's where it's at. I think that's going to mean like, um, you know, basic, when I say mobile ADUs, that is intended to encompass anything that's a mobile dwelling, whether it's like a mobile house, I guess, but more like a tiny house on wheels or an RV or a travel trailer or whatever else may come in the future. I think, I think there's a lot of potential for that to be a big thing where that's way like not happening yet, but it will happen hopefully eventually because it should. Yeah. It makes sense for the same reasons that, at least for all the policy reasons that people state that they like ADUs, mm-hmm. mobile ADUs would be even better. That is, they would be much less expensive. They'd be easier to build in one place and move move to someplace else. They provide more flexibility. But it's like a, an entirely different sector that doesn't exist really yet, except now yeah. it's starting to in California and Oregon. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I was thinking like, Okay, right now it's grassroots. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe in ten years, if if the housing crisis continues to get worse, which for all all indicators point to that it will, maybe there will be you know government money or like actual like towns reaching out to homeowners and saying like, we want to put an ADU on your property. We'll help you do it. Like, kind of reversing the flow of like it's rather than homeowners coming to the city to say can i do this the city is reaching out to homeowners to say please do this yeah and they should right like cities should be doing whatever they can to support homeowners to do this stuff not that they should be directly subsidizing it but they Mm -hmm. should be like treating them with adus with special white gloves that makes it as easy as possible and whatever methods seem to be working on that front other cities should emulate and the very first thing is having good regulations for them which is kind of stupid but that's that's where we're at is like the west coast like kind of has good ad regulations everywhere yeah but pretty much just just the west coast not even like one state in yeah past there it's like not that good across across the rest of the country this is a, a good question that that came in from tiny house engage um, would you say that the poison pill and unfriendly barriers are for the most part intentional or are they just 
like dinosaurs from the building industry past? Oh, that's a great question. I think they're dinosaurs. I mean, certainly now they're dinosaurs. Maybe when they first were conceived of, they had ill, they had poor intentions. But I think now it's uh-huh. kind of just like people just have owner occupancy requirements because they require owner occupancy. We, we don't know why. It's like the bureaucrats don't think about it. They don't think to question it. And it's just what they have. But they don't know. Like, actually, I did a lot of research on what the history of these regulations were for. And it, it, I couldn't track it down. Like, there's no answer. But I can surmise what they might have been about. It's probably, you know, some, it's probably some perception of like, we don't want renters. Like, we don't like renters. And so we don't want renters in our, in our, in our, right sacred single family zone. So, I mean, if I was to guess, that would probably be the precipitating motivation, but that's not really a justifiable motivation. If you believe in, you know, providing affordable housing and stuff like that, that we say we want. Yeah, totally. That's a great question and a great answer. Um, so I think now that, now that we've talked about ADUs a bit, I feel like now we can come back to you know, what, what is happening in Portland and the recent, the recent changes that are applying to tiny houses on wheels and RVs. Yeah. Let's talk about it. It's super cool. Yeah. Um, maybe when did this happen? What happened? How are you involved? Anywhere you want to go with it? Oh, sure. Um, so I've been involved with this idea for a long time, like since I opened Caravan really in 2013. Mm-hmm. which is a tiny house hotel. So those are like tiny homes on wheels on a commercial property. And what the, the things I'm most proud about with Caravan are that it was like the first place where tiny house on wheels were legally connected to sewer uh-huh. anywhere that I knew of. And it was the yep. first place where people could like go stay in a tiny house because there are other ways they were like under the radar, but we figured out how to make them like publicly available. Mm-hmm. So in any case, so I've been working on this in that, in that kind of awareness building in like, building code specific way in a lot for, for, for a long time, but now we've gotten a new code passed in Portland that as of August 1st, 2021, that allows for the habitation of a mobile dwelling that is an, uh, a tiny house on wheels or an RV, any form of an RV basically uh, to be uh, lived in on a residential property. And, and, and importantly, it's not classified as an ADU. That is, you can have an ADU and also have this. Wow. You can ha- you can li- you can have multi- you can have a duplex triplex or a fourplex. You can also have this on top of that, so it doesn't count as like a housing allocation. Number one, number two, you don't have to meet any of these ANSI one nineteen point five standards or THIA certification standards. So it allows for the DIY DIYers out there to build something and live in it, and they won't be required to meet any standards, which reduces the cost of construction. And lastly, um, you're not required to, or you're, you're supposed to put in a water sewer and electrical connection, but if you don't have plumbing serving your, your mobile dwelling, that is, you don't have a kitchen or a bathroom, the presumption is that you can use the primary house and you don't have to provide, as a homeowner, you don't have to provide a legal sewer or water connection to the tiny house, which again, reduces the cost a lot. So again, this would be treating it like a detached bedroom that is not one with plumbing in it. So we're also going to allow that to happen in a detached tiny house on wheels. And so it provides a lot of flexibility. It's a pretty easy standard to, to meet as far as the development standards. And there's already, in fact, a lot of people living in RVs and tiny houses in Portland. It's kind of been, you know, 
colloquially understood as like a tiny house friendly place for a long time, but it, it right. wasn't really that different than other places, just that a lot of people lived here with tiny houses. But now it's officially a tiny house friendly place. And it's different than the other approaches that have been used elsewhere in the country that limit tiny houses to like certain standards and certain tie down requirements and certain utility connection requirements and all the stuff that makes them more difficult, more expensive to build. Yeah. And it's, it's pleasantly surprising that, that you were able to, or, or whoever advocated for this was able to get it approved without those ANSI standards, because it seems like most other cities are like, all right, we'll allow movable tiny houses, but like they have to have been built to like these standards and certified and we need like it basically kind of locks out any tiny houses that were built before 2018 or 19 right <laughs> or even now and also just locks out any kind of DIY exactly and yeah. and and it and it makes this form of construction expensive right and yeah. so if we're actually doing this to solve affordable housing, which again is like what everybody says they want, then we have to start pushing the envelope and thinking outside the box and doing stuff that's actually innovative. Right. And so a, a IRC or sorry, a ANSI rated tiny house is going to cost more because it's done by professionals in professional settings with licensed GE, you know, plumbers and electricians and all the rest. It's going to cost more. And I get there's value in that. I'm not trying to say there's not value in it. I'm a big fan of advanced construction methods, et cetera. But if our goal is to solve affordable housing, which everybody says it is, then we have to figure out how to solve affordable housing. And so right. that is, this is a big part of that. It's going to re- dramatically reduce the cost. And if you allow for RVs, hey, it ain't a beautiful thing to live in, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper than ADU, which is a hell of a lot cheaper than a house. Right, right. And the, that RVs ostensibly were built to a standard if they were a manufactured RV. Yeah. Certainly not the standard that a house would be built to, but a standard nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're really invested in standards, I guess you could say built to an RV standard, but I mean, then you're going to, you're not allowing for a beautiful, cute, tiny house on wheels, but you are going to allow for somebody to live in a crappy looking formaldehyde plastic shell. So how do you, how do you, make the safety trade-off or, you know, the perceived safety trade-off that, okay, if they're not being built to these ANSI standards, you know, there's going to be people dying in fires who can't get out of the loft. There's going to be air quality issues from, you know, mold growing in these houses. I mean, I know that these are, are rare scenarios, but, you know, I'm sure something like this came up at, at some planning meeting somewhere. I'm sure that that is the rational kind of response that a lot of people have. I would just question, I would say, find me any statistically valid studies that actually show what you're saying here in reality. For example, I would say like, are there, is it true that a, can we say for authoritatively that RVs are more safe than DIY tiny ass on wheels? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I had people, I have, I've had over 20,000 guests stay at Caravan, the tiny house hotel, since we've been open, not a single injury that entire time. I mean, nothing, nothing bad ever happened to any of the tiny houses. None of them were built to any standards, probably not even by professional builders in many cases. RVs, 
definitely I've seen RV fires and all this, even though they're certified. Yeah. So like, maybe it's just the fact we don't have combustible appliances in our tiny homes. I don't know. I don't have all the answers to this stuff. All I know is we should be able to back up our theories with actual facts and not just assumptions that somehow meeting some arbitrary standard that somebody thinks is good on some committee is somehow <laughs> going to result in more life safety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. So my experience in, in the tiny house world has been that, that the tiny house movement types are very resistant to being lumped in with RVs because, you know, probably for aesthetic reasons and also the fact that RVs are, it's right there in the name, recreational vehicles. And so it's been this struggle to say like, no, even though our tiny home has wheels, it's not an RV, it's a house. Um, do you think that there's, do you think that there's any downside to kind of the Portland regulations that kind of lump movable tiny houses and RVs just together? You know, it's a, these are getting into really technocratic yeah. details, so I can answer the question, but I don't think it really matters that much. I think these n- nomenclature is going to change. It's not going to yeah. be called, called tiny houses on wheels forever. It's not going to be called movable tiny houses forever. Yeah. It's going to be called something else. It might be able to be called mobile ADUs one day. Mm-hmm. These names will change and definitions will change. So don't get too stuck on the details of how we're defining it in 2021 or whatever this is, because yeah. it wasn't that way in 2015 and it won't be that way in 2025. But in Oregon, as along with 48 other states, the United States, I don't know which state still does it, but 49 states no longer regulate RVs as a state entity. They no longer say, we require that RVs are built to RVIA or THIA standards or whatever it is, or not THIA, whatever it is. I don't know what the acronym is. So states have kind of like foregone their authority of overseeing the, the construction standards for RVs. So I think there might be some like opening there for calling tiny houses on wheels RVs because RVs are not being required to meet any standard by the state anyway. So jurisdictions mm-hmm. can still require that if they want, but they don't have to. And yeah. so we basically got Portland to follow suit of what Oregon had done and say, hey, Oregon no longer requires RVs meet any statewide standard. It's up to the buyer of the RV to see whether they want it to be certified to a certain standard or not. It's not up to the state anymore. We don't care. We're out of this game. Yeah. If you want to tow it down the road, you have to get a tow tag, like a license plate on it, but that's not really a building code standard. That's just like, mm-hmm. if you're going to tow it down the road. So we said to Portland, Hey, you know, Oregon, Oregon isn't requiring this. So Portland, you guys shouldn't require it either. And if people want to tow it down the road, they can get a temporary tow plate from the DMV. And we're good. We don't need your intervention or involvement in the regulation of these, you know, mobile dwellings. You're off the hook, city. And that's the approach they adopted. Cool. I'm sure, you know, there's so much friction in in government. These processes that you have to go to. Okay, you have to talk to the environmental review board you have to talk to the zoning you have to talk to planning you have to get the building there's like so many different offices to visit and i feel like anytime you can reduce the friction there it's going to be faster and easier to build something like this well, yeah we're, we're putting in okay so i'm going to tip off my next question that you didn't ask but i'm going to get to which is i'm starting a new company now with it are you going to ask about that i am going to ask but i was about to so do it 
Okay, so I'm starting this new company called Tiny Hookups, which is with two other people and we're serving as general contractors putting in infrastructure on people's residential properties under this new code that allows yeah. for the habitation of mobile dwellings. And so, you know, in this case, on a really expensive, complicated project, we are going to put in the infrastructure, water, sewer, electrical connections for our first project. It's going to cost like 15,000 bucks is expensive. This is not cheap. 15,000. Okay. 15,000. I think it's expensive, like relatively speaking for, but, but it's just a really complicated project and it's going to take us like two months, which is a really uh-huh. long time. And the tiny house is going to be delivered later this month. And she probably started the process like, I don't know how many months ago, but it's actually being shipped over from the East coast. In any case, mm-hmm. this whole project with the house is going to cost her like, it's going to be expensive, like $115,000 going to take like six months. And that is like half the cost of the least expensive ADU you can do right now. And that's a really complicated project. Wow. You could do, and so like you could do infrastructure on some properties for like 5k, 10k and get a tiny house much quicker than six months and for much less than a hundred thousand. So, I mean, and, th- and that's like, you know, it's, it's like, this is an expensive, really difficult one. And it's still half the cost of the least expensive AD you can do in Portland. So I think there's just a, a lot of potential for this um, form of like formalizing this type of construction or development. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the name Tiny Hookups. It's a really awesome idea um, to just kind of be able to one-stop shop company that's going to come and put in the infrastructure. I'm assuming you're going to get the approvals needed from the city and and figure that all out. What in Portland, at least, like what do you have to put down for a a tiny house on wheels in a backyard? Do you have to pour like a a concrete slab? Does it just gravel? Like run me through kind of what you have to do. Well, this is great because like, this is literally, we're doing our first job as a general contractor. We're the only company doing it and no other cities in this country. So you're getting the, the, hot the, the, the first, first one. This is the very first, first like answer to this question. We're going to have to do a three by three foot sloped concrete pad towards a sewer clean out, which is, you know, an ABS sewer clean out, which is going to tie into the primary house. It's a four inch or three inch sewer clean out. Then we have to put a, a foot operated latch on top of the sewer cleanout so that you can ostensibly, this is adopting the RV like sewer dump standards so that you could touch the dump station to open up the foot operated latch to dump in a flexible duct from your RV to this ABS sewer connection without touching it with your hands. And if there's God forbid spillover of crap, uh-huh. then it would end up on this three by three foot concrete pad, which is sloped towards the sewer drain. So that's the sewer. Okay. The water, you just use any hose connection on your property or put in a new dedicated spigot using PEX. And then the sewer connection, or sorry, the electrical connection, you've got to do a dedicated 30 amp or, or 50 amp electrical circuit, uh, which is going to look like an RV type of outlet, right. like you would see at an RV park. And then as far as the parking pad, you can park on grass, you can park on asphalt, you can park on concrete, you can park on gravel, you can park on whatever you want. From a best practices point of view, it's probably better to park on gravel or a hard surface, at least where you're going to put the points of contact with you yeah. know, the four corners of the tiny house. So I, we're going to go with gravel for the most part, but you know, it'll depend on the site. Nice. Nice. Uh, that's so just uh, catching up on, on something you said a little while ago. So the cheapest ADU you can do in Portland is, is $250,000. Is 
Yeah, I'd say like if you did a custom 400 square foot ADU these days, which is on the small side, 350, 400 square feet, that's going to come in at 225 to 250 based on construction costs currently. Yeah. You can get some wow. less expensive ADUs, don't get me wrong. But like yeah. if you're going to go for the custom uh, standard yeah. kind of product, that would be it. You can get some for like 125, 150, but like those are like manufactured homes basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. So that back to tiny hookups, very cool. Do you have more, more clients, more projects in the works? Yeah, we have through my ADU consulting business. Now I'm getting a lot more inquiries for tiny houses yeah. and wheels. So as I'm yeah. doing those consultations, I'm just, you know, putting our name out there amongst those who want to put in the infrastructure saying, Hey, mm-hmm. I will tell you how to do it. But if you want to do it, so if you want to do it yourself, it'll be cheaper. But if you want a GC to do it, we will do it. And so some homeowners are contacting me that way and that's nice. where we're getting our leads. Very nice. Are there any kind of movable housing structures that are excluded from, from Portland's regulations? Like I'm thinking schoolies, vans, mm. can those count as RVs? I don't think they do. I don't think a school bus counts as an RV. And it's a good question. I don't know what the technical distinction is. Like, I don't actually don't know the answer to this question, whether a motorized RV is permissible right now or not Mm -hmm. in Portland. Mm -hmm. I know that all non-motorized RVs are, but I'm not sure about motorized RVs. Yeah. And schoolies would not be, schoolies would be classified most likely as a, as a vehicle, not an RV, I'm guessing. Yeah. Was there backlash to this or was there, were there any people who came to the meetings to fight it? No, this is so fascinating, Ethan. There was like 2000 public comments about this proposed set of regulations that included tiny homes on wheels. Uh-huh. And there was probably about 200 comments that specifically talked about tiny homes on wheels and RVs. This is all online on the public record. Yeah. If you want to look at it yourself and they were all positive, there was wow. not one negative comment about this proposal in the entire public comment period. That, that blows my mind. Cause I could definitely see some people getting, uh, being like, Oh, the, my property values. If an RV is parked next door kind of thing. Not one negative wow. comment. It is fascinating. And that yeah. goes to show me that there is a huge political opening here for tiny houses and wheels and RVs yeah. because of yeah the motivations for people to solve the affordable housing crisis. Now you have to do some groundwork with like housing activists to get people out to support it. But yeah, there wasn't a yeah. lot of push pushback despite all the fear that, you know, people are like afraid of having RVs next door to them. There wasn't anybody commenting about that. Cool. Cool. So my last kind of topic that I want to, want to touch on here is just like, how can people, you know, somebody listening who doesn't have the good fortune of living on the West coast, you know, somebody on the East coast or in the middle of the country in a town that has crappy ADU regulations. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice? Yeah. What I said, when I, what I said at the beginning of the show, which is build, build it anyway, just don't put a yeah. kitchen sink or stove in it. So most jurisdictions, like you, you can find creative loopholes to everything. And I'm like the loophole guy, I like loopholes. So, um, <laughs> so build it as a detached office, build it as a detached bedroom. If it has to be attached, build an addition, you know, you can put in walls between one portion of an addition and another, you can put in a bathroom, you can put in a separate entrance and you can put in everything except the kitchen sink and stove. 
And voila, you have an ADU-like structure and you can accomplish all the same goals that people who have ADUs can. And you can tell your planning department to go catch up with the West Coast because we, we need people who are willing to stick their neck mm-hmm. out and do civil dis- disobedience in a totally legitimate way and show the idiocracy of the, some of these rules and regulations that are prohibiting us from taking part in this grassroots housing revolution. Yeah, cool. And then what about um, those who, who might want to actually advocate, who maybe don't have the, the property or the means to, to do this kind of civil disobedience, but wants to be part of the, the advocacy? Yeah. And like, you know, so if you're living in a tiny house on wheels, you're also part of that, by the way, like it's not just people who own property. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think the number one step in jurisdictions or regions where there's like a need for this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you could say it's the whole country, but like really there's a need for this in areas where there's an affordable housing crisis, which is most of the coastal United States, East and West coast. Then I think the best strategy is to kind of get together with other people who are also interested in this concept, not just friends, but like Mm -hmm. institutional actors, realtors, builders, designers, urban planners, and work on a strategy to legalize ADUs, re-legalize ADUs, make them easier to build, make middle housing easier to build. And Tiny House on Wheels, like I said, I think are kind of the future. It's a little bit ahead of the time in terms of like cities broadly adopting this stuff because you know it's a little bit as we're bleeding edge right now like we have to see how this plays out in portland and yeah. in california to know what's really the best practice yeah and other places but other places can experiment too and you know i think the more experimentation right now with tiny house on wheels the better because they offer a really good opportunity and apparently they're politically palatable um based on our experience here in portland yeah seems like it well, one, one thing that I just like to ask all my guests is, do you have um, one or two or three book recommendations or other resources um, about ADUs, about housing in general, th- just things that have inspired you to pass along? Yeah, I, I just read a book called uh, Wheel Estate. Uh, okay. Bad name, but great book. <laughs> it was written in the, I think, early 90s, maybe late 80s. And it's fascinating. It's just a, a historic really detailed historic sketch of the origin of, of uh, RVs and, and mobile homes, manufactured homes, and, and it touches on ADUs. And I think that's a really good like background on the history of, of mobile dwellings prior to the tiny house on wheels movement. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Cole Peterson, thank you so much for, for sharing your knowledge and experience and, and thanks for what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Cole Peterson for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Cole's website, books, and to a great blog post about the Portland regulations and what changed at thetinyhouse.net slash 180. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 180. All right. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.